I'm Kimberly C. Paul. Today we talk with John Duberstein. He's the husband of Nina Riggs. She lost her battle to cancer, but completed her memoir, The Bright Hour, which is now on the New York Times bestseller list. How do we become the architect of our own destiny? Throughout two decades of working with the dying, I think I've discovered the secrets to dying well in America. We must learn to build the pathways to our last chapter, to create the blueprints that reflects our individual lives and values. Knowledge is power, and if we desire a death that reflects our life, we must become the designer. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's really nice to talk to you. You too. Thanks for having me. So before we even get started talking about your, your late wife's book, um, tell me, how are you and your boys? Um, we, I never really know how to answer that question um, exactly, but I think we're doing really well. I mean, I think we're, all things considered, we're, um, the boys are you know, in school and they're doing fine and I'm not hearing lots of things about you know, behavioral outbursts or problems adjusting or anything like that. Um, and the boys and I are able to communicate pretty well, even though, um, I think Nina was the primary, uh, communication nexus in our family. In a lot of ways, we have talked a lot about, um, about loss and about her being gone and about how that affects them. Uh, having me as the sole parent affects them and, uh, affects me too, because I tell them I'm pretty, I, I do struggle, uh, being, a learning to be a, the only parent and the the sort of buck stops here syndrome can be really difficult at times, but I tell them when I'm really struggling with it. And I think they understand that, that it's harder for me without um, Nina around. And, and I think I want to tell them, and I think I have told them that I understand it's harder for them too, because I'm not necessarily um, who they would come to for everything. And, and they're missing Nina, not just in a way that's, you know, you miss your mom or you miss somebody that you love and you care about, but also, on a practical level, she was a problem solver for them. She was a resource for them. And um, so I like to try and tell them, you know, I get it. I get that it's not easy having me as the only parent. And sometimes it's actually rougher and uh, more difficult for you guys. But um, but I think, I hope um, that they're doing okay. And I hope that I'm doing the right things with them. And I've got lots of help and, and people to give me feedback and support uh, just in case I don't. Mm. Well, you know, Nina just passed away, you know, February of this year. So it's still so new and so raw. Um, you are my neighbor in Greensboro. You had um, Believe the Hospice of Greensboro helping you guys down the street. And um, I, I just I just finished reading the book several weeks ago and it, it just struck a chord. And, and how you came across in the book of... Um, uh, it was just touching how she saw you and how she was able to uh, translate that in the book. But let's go back and talk a little bit about how you met this w wonderful wife of yours. <laughs> Nina, Nina and I met at nerd camp um, and I feel okay calling it nerd camp. Um, I don't think I'm denigrating nerds because that's what the nerds at nerd camp call it. So um, <laughs> they, <laughs> they're, they're very proud of that fact. Um, and no, we met at a program called the Center for Talented Youth or CTY, and we were both staff members. We were both instructors, um, teachers at the camp. And that was back in 1998 when she was a rising senior in college and I had just graduated from college. And um, we met 
I think maybe the first day we were there or the second day we were there, we actually met. And then um, there's this great scene in the book that Nina talks about us meeting in the cemetery. Um, and I think it actually wasn't the first time we actually met, but it was where we first talked and got to know, know each other because we both took our classes there. We both happened to be there on the same day um, as an exercise in our, in our um, instruction. And um, so, yeah, it was, it was just this great setting we were all charged up about the things that we were teaching and she was teaching writing and I was teaching history and philosophy. Um, I had a, I had an existentialism class that I taught um, and she was teaching all these great uh, poets and essayists and just, you know, sharing all the things that she was really in love with uh, through this class that she was teaching. And, um, and then we got together and we were all full of it, you know, with each other and couldn't stop talking and, uh, and sharing the things that we were passionate about. And uh, so it was a really actually beautiful, lovely setting to to fall in love, um, even though it was also nerd camp. <laughs> and there were like dozens and dozens of, you know, semi well-behaved, um, precocious 13 to 16 year olds running around and we were supposed to be taking care of them. <laughs> uh, well, it's, it, it sounds like, you know, Nina has been a writer all her life. And who... Who has influenced her? I heard that she's related to somebody. Uh, yeah, really well known. <laughs> she. I mean, if you read the book, it's you know you the two names that will stand out are her great 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 grandfather Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, Nina's from an old New England family, um, and it's uh, the Emersons are actually married into the to the sort of bigger grander New England family that she comes from in some ways, which is the Forbes family. Um, but those two families are pretty intertwined. And then um, Michel de Montaigne was also a major influence in terms of this project for Nina. I don't know that he was a, um, an influence on her, um, on her formation as a writer generally, but he certainly was a major influence on her understanding of what it meant to live well and to live with mortality, either in someone you love or in yourself. Um, he was kind of her spirit guide. Montaigne was through the the process of losing her mom and then and going through her own terminal diagnosis. Um, she had loads of other influences. She had some great mentors um, in college and in graduate school. Um, and then, of course, she had loads of influences of people who she just loved to read and whose writing she emulated. And some of them are are you know referenced in the Bright Hour um, in her book. The the people who she most liked to read wound up showing up on her own pages. Oh, wow. And she also taught at the University of uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina? Yeah, she w- she taught at UNC. She was in the um, in the creative writing department there. She taught um, an intro to poetry class for about 10 years uh, over at UNC. Talk to me about the day she was diagnosed. Because we, you, and we as the reader now reading The Bright Hour thought this was going to be a year of her life and curable. Right. Yeah. And, you know, even at the time, just that much of a, of a diagnosis was a real blow. Um, I was actually in new Orleans. I was at a a training for, um, for my job and I knew that she was going, she had had um, this biopsy, um, but I'd had this trip planned and it was, you know, as a, continuing legal education thing. And it was a training that I was really keen on doing. So we decided that I should just go anyway. Um, and we weren't even sure when she was going to get the results back, but it turned out the first full day of the conference, she called me, uh, and I was in a 
training session and I stepped out and she said, you know, they, I just got, I just got off the phone with the doctor's office and they say it's the, the pathology says it's cancer. Um, and we didn't have much more information than that because the initial results are sort of binary. You know, they just tell you whether it seems malignant or not. Uh, they didn't have all the genetic testing and the, the type of cancer and all that stuff yet. Um, but it really floored us. I mean, she, I think both of us were, were 100% genuinely expecting that, um, that it would be benign at that point. So the, the first real tumbler that fell wasn't even the, um, one small spot thing. It was the, just getting our minds around having one small spot, you know, and then it became, um, the, the mantra sort of was, okay, well, this, cause this can be contained. It's small, it's, you know, it's localized, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, I, I immediately was hit with this sort of sense of shock and urgency. And I, you know, I told the group leader in my section of my breakout section or whatever that I needed to go. And they were of course very nice. And then I got on the phone with the airline and just to get myself home to Greensboro, I felt like I needed to be with her immediately, you know, that we, and she felt the same way. Like I, I needed to get back there as quickly as I could. Um, and then, yeah. And then we just sort of started processing it from there. I mean, one of the really interesting things that happened in that moment, and I think Nina writes about it really well in the book, is Nina was really anxious just as a general matter. She had sort of a, a generalized anxiety issue, um, and it would manifest sometimes as concern about her own health and sometimes concern about the kids' health or my health. Um, but when she was diagnosed, there was a lot of anxiety building up to the diagnosis. But then once it was confirmed that it was cancer and kind of a, a bad type of breast cancer to get, the anxiety component really went away. Um, it was only in that those moments leading up to it that she was truly anxious. And, and it's not that she wasn't upset or that she was somehow, you know, just totally becalmed about the, the cancer thing. But, um, you know, anxiety is a funny creature. It's the, the whole thing with anxiety, at least in my experience of it, is that you're worrying about the, the only things you're really, truly anxious about are the things that can't be confirmed. They're the things that you can never get your mind around or get a diagnosis for or get a, you know, complete assurance that it's not really happening. And so once she had the really bad thing happen, uh, there was really no, there wasn't really much for the anxiety to work on. And, and a lot of that fell away during the course of her, um, of her treatment and, and the course of her disease. Well, you know, the, the, the crazy thing about the situation is not only were you dealing with your wife's new diagnosis, you had a mother-in-law facing her own serious diagnosis. And on the, I think on the day your wife was diagnosed, you found out that your one of your sons is diabetic. Right. I mean, what was, what was going on through your mind throughout this period? Were you, did you feel like you were in the twilight zone? Yeah. I used to refer to it. I think I even wrote some, some of our blog entries about it or Facebook updates about it as sort of the, the age of absurdity. Like it was the only way to make sense of it was to kind of not laugh at it exactly. I mean, it wasn't humorous, but it was absurd. I mean, it was almost like somebody just giving you the, the literal parade of horribles. Like here's the worst case scenario for your life in the next two weeks. You could find out that, you know, your son's diabetic, your wife has cancer, your mother-in-law is going to die. You're, you know, um, and it was really ridiculous. It was just the sort of piling on effect. And, um, you know, when things like that happen, I remember when I was diagnosed with diabetes in college, I was 20 years old and I'd really been relatively healthy. I mean, I hadn't had any major things go wrong. 
And sort of subconsciously, I just assumed then that after that, there were going to be other blows to follow. Like, I, And it took a while before I sort of got, and I think that's a really common reaction from people who are diagnosed with chronic illness or serious illness. Um, but with this situation, it was almost like there was some objective truth to that notion. It wasn't just the effect of being diagnosed and realizing that you're not healthy. It was like, boom, 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 you know, dominoes kept falling. And it's really only now that I sort of have the sense that, you know, it's been seven and a half months or whatever since, since Nina died and, and even longer than that since diagnosis and everything. And, and really not everything followed suit. Like our, obviously our whole life did not crumble around our ears. Um, even though Nina's literally did, um, Freddie adjusted to being diabetic and we sort of, uh, you know, went through the process of, of losing Jan and, and, um, dealing with that grief and, and, um, you know, Nina's, Nina's death and, and all that that entailed. But it wasn't just like a succession of things happening one after the other. It just, but it, in, in the moment, it felt very much that way. And it felt, um, I don't know, the, the, the earth shifting under our feet, I think, is the, is the phrase that Nina uses in the book to describe those moments. And it just felt like it was shifting constantly, like we, we had built on quicksand or something. I mean, it was like, really? Like, we're, I don't even know which fire to put out. Um, you know, here's Nina with a fresh diagnosis of cancer. And she spent three nights in the hospital with Freddie, who's it was the day after his birthday. Um, and he's in the hospital trying to get his blood sugar stabilized and learn how to take insulin and all this stuff. And we've got another kid who can't be in the hospital. So I'm home with him. And it's just, you know, it, I don't know. We were, we were stretched so thin in so many different ways. Um, when I look back on it, it, it does seem implausible and crazy. And, and um, you know, at the time we were just trying to, tread water and keep ourselves going and, and figure all this stuff out. Um, but any one of those things would have been more than enough. If you'd have told me, um, you know, you're going to have to have something to cope with. I'd say, yeah, that's a lot. A any one of those things happening would have been a lot to deal with. So yeah, it was a really trying time. We like to say that the end of January, which is when both Freddie and my birthday is the same week. Um, it should just, we should just skip over it every year. We basically should just <laughs> not bother with the second half of January um, because it's just oh. cursed. And I was actually diagnosed on the, it was the 23rd of January, just before my birthday um, back in 1996. And Freddie was diagnosed on the 26th of January, which is the day after his birthday in, in uh, 2015. So um, yeah, I think it's just, there's some bad juju. <laughs> around those dates. Well, I mean, talk to me a little bit about, and I, I don't want you to put words in people's mouths, but I can only imagine you observing your wife facing a chronic illness and not only you watching this, but her mother watching this yeah. and going through her own serious illness. How, how was that? I mean, because it's nothing like losing a child. And I could only, I'm sure it just burdened her mother knowing that her own child was getting ready to face something bigger than what we thought it was going to be. Or did she even know? Oh, she knew. So Nina was diagnosed in January of 2015 and her mom didn't die until August of that year. And the, the only good part of the whole timeline, cause it's also, you know, piling on one after the other, but, um, the only good part of it was at the time when Jan died, Nina's um, Nina had had her mastectomy and um, the results were all really positive at that point. She had clean lymph nodes and her margins were narrow, but they were okay. They were clean. 
the tumor, they thought it was more that the tumor was sort of oddly formed and oddly shaped than anything to do with, you know, the, the invasiveness of the disease and everything looked good at that point. Um, so I think her mom died. In fact, I think her mom said at one point to Nina, um, you know, I just don't think I'm really glad that things are okay with you because I don't think I could, I don't think I could go. She had, her mom decided to stop treatment. It wasn't, it wasn't just that the disease overwhelmed her. She could have gone back and done a treatment that she had done before, but it was just so God awfully hard on her system at that point. And she was so depleted that she really couldn't, she genuinely couldn't face it. And, and unlike Nina, her mom's disease had kind of a slow burn. I mean, she was, she was diagnosed back in 2007. I think it was, it was like January, February of 2007. Um, so, you know, almost a decade of dealing with multiple myeloma and she had a stem cell transplant and multiple rounds of different drugs. And so she basically made the decision to stop treatment with the knowledge that Nina's disease was contained, you know, that it was a little scary and she was really young to be dealing with this stuff at 37. But, um, but that the, all the indicators that we had at that point were that there was no metastatic disease and it was treatable. So we were still in the. So her mother had some peace. What's that? Yeah, so some peace, exactly. And I think Nina, in retrospect, was really grateful for that, even though obviously it didn't turn out to be true um, for exactly the reason you said, which is she didn't want that to be a burden for her mom when she was facing imminent mortality. I mean, we were talking, we didn't know how long it was going to take once she stopped treatment, but we suspected and you know, correctly so that it would be very, very short term. And, and indeed it was, you know, just a couple of months that she lived after that. So, um, yeah, so I think that was good. When did you know that Nina was not going to outlive her cancer diagnosis? We knew the day and in, in the fall after that, in the, um, the December after that, when she broke her back, um, she, we didn't know immediately that she'd broken her back. She'd been having really bad back pain, um, for a while. And we just assumed it was a combination of some injury or, or muscle pull or, or disc issue. And, you know, the fact that she'd been, uh, you know, relatively sedentary and unable to exercise and maybe was having core weakness and that caused some kind of injury. But then she took a sort of a, just a false step on the sidewalk outside our house and basically her vertebra collapsed. And when we went into the ER at Duke, uh, the next day, they told us that it was a pathologic fracture in her, in her vertebra. And basically it, it wasn't, so it wasn't the normal fracture of a bone where trauma creates the fracture. It was just that cancer had eaten away at her vertebra to the point where it basically just dissolved and collapsed. Um, and Nina was diagnosed with triple negative breast cancer, which doesn't have a, a second line treatment. So the, the, there are experimental drugs and there's some other stuff that they throw at it to try once it's metastatic. But we knew that the whole shooting match with her was that initial um, treatment and, and the mastectomy to remove the, the, the active disease. And we hoped that the disease hadn't gone anywhere else. And the, like I said, the initial indicators were that it, that it wasn't metastatic and that it was okay at, in, in August when, when Jan died. Like I said, that was all true. And, and then up through the fall, it, everything was quiet. And, you know, she had this back pain and she was doing um, follow-up radiation. In fact, when we went to the ER to get her back looked at, 
over in Duke. That was supposed to be, I think, her second to last or her last radiation treatment. And instead, obviously, she wound up being admitted and they had to do surgery on her back and implant this cage in her spine so that she could um, so that she could they could relieve the pain and she could move around again. Um, but, yeah, from that point on, um, from from December, it was right before Christmas of uh, of 2015 until she died. We really knew that uh that the disease was was going to be terminal and that she probably did she probably didn't have a whole lot of time left i mean if you look at the at the survival charts um you know they're not real encouraging and and she did deliberately we sort of i investigated that stuff at the time and and we sort of deliberately said yeah this is probably not something that you need to look at right now and and eventually she did eventually once it got really clear that things were moving again and that she'd had more metastatic disease um, at that point, I think she sort of opened herself up to it and she was able to, to process that information without it being too, too overwhelming. Now, did you guys tell the kids along the way? Because the thing is, I mean, for a short while, y'all felt like, whoo, we got through that. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it was really interesting. I mean, we did, we talked to the kids and we really felt like we were being, you know, progressive and open and, and forward thinking about it and really, you know, not telling them everything because we obviously didn't want to, I mean, these are kids they're you know, they were seven and nine. Um, we didn't want to warp their, their tiny little minds with all that stuff. But, um, we realized at one point we were taking them to this program called kids can, which is a wonderful program. And it's in, uh, it was at Duke and it's for kids with parents in treatment for cancer. And so they're dealing with all these issues and they're being educated about it. And we just felt great about it. But after this one meeting, Nina asked the boys um, what they were doing with it because they break you up. They, they take the kids off and they do an educational thing. And then the parents basically have a, a um, support group where we talk about parenting kids through cancer treatment. And um, the boys said, well, we, t- we all shared our story a little bit. And we said, you know, you were really sick and you have breast cancer, but now you're doing a lot better. And both of us sort of looked at each other and Freddie, the older one said, um, you are doing better, aren't you mom? And, and we realized like, I mean, we had talked about it and we had mentioned things to them. Like, you know, this means mom has to have surgery and this means the cancer's in her, you know, other parts of her body and it's in her spine. But at the point where they were, we were at that class, she'd had her surgery. She was feeling much, much better physically. And there hadn't been any progress in the disease. And we just hadn't updated them. And their observation was her hair had grown back. She was much more physically capable. She was much more active in our life. She was driving them places. We were doing activities as a family again. Um, some some kind of norm, normalcy coming back. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a, a, a creeping normalcy <laughs> that sort of happened. Um, and so Nina, we, it was so funny. We left Duke and I, I, sat, I felt like we had a flat tire and it turned out there was a slow leak in the tire. So we're pulled over in this gas station and I'm trying to deal with the tire and Nina's crawled into the back seat with her, you know, damaged back and, um, all this stuff. And she's trying to explain to the boys that, no, I'm never going to get better from this. We don't know how long I have and hopefully it'll be longer rather than shorter. But, you know, when it spread to my back, that meant that, um, the disease wasn't contained and I was just, you know, trying to put it in kids terms and let them know. And, everybody's crying and you know it just it was this really stark realization for us that it's like just because you have one good talk with your kids doesn't mean that you've done all the work that you need to do to prepare them and and even somebody as mindful and sensitive and in tune as nina and she was incredibly in tune and sensitive and mindful of, of the children and of people in general 
I mean, it was really emotional and obviously difficult at the time, both because of what she was telling them and because it made us both realize we hadn't been doing as good a job as we thought we maybe had keeping the kids up to speed and making sure that they were prepared for what was coming. Um, but it really did, I think, um, a lot of the work that needed to be done. I mean, I think it was very organic, you know, we were coming to terms with it and then the kids were coming to terms with it with us. And so I think they felt very much included in that moment. And it was, a. um, you know, it was really, we were more diligent after that, I think, but also they were more aware. They were just, you know, I think they, from that point on, they really knew they, they had a sense that, you know, this was something and, and they were both reached very immediately emotionally. I think, I mean, like I said, we, they were, we were all crying. We were all emotional and Nina was in the back seat with them, but it was also just like, you know, she, she was holding them both. She was hugging them both and, and in physical contact with them when she was talking to them. And I think, there's, you know, that there's a lot of communication that happens. And certainly with Nina and our boys, there was, that's just physical, that's nonverbal. And that's, you know, that really matters and, and needs to take place um, and can't be replicated just, you know, you know, without being in the moment and really having it happen, like I said, organically. Um, and I do think that was an important moment, but I also think she was, we, she and I both were more mindful after that to have to try and cultivate that, to try and take the time with them to make sure that they knew that we understood they were going through this stuff too. Well, you know, we talked earlier that Nina is a writer. When did you have a clue that she was starting to write about this entire experience or did you know it from the beginning? I guess I did. And I didn't, um, you know, she started to write about it basically blogging and we had been doing that initially. I started um, almost as much as she was just to update people, you know, on a caring bridge website so that we didn't have to sort of serially tell people what was going on and that everybody could be included and be up to speed and know what, what our situation was. But then I think somewhere in there, I mean, Nina's tendency as an artist and as a writer is to, she needs an outlet. She really, that's how she processes and that's how she makes sense out of things and how she makes you know, beauty out of her experiences. And so I think it, in retrospect, it was natural that she sort of took that up, but it very quickly outgrew Caring Bridge and then outgrew, um, you know, even the blog that she was writing on. Um, but when she created her blog, um, which she called Suspicious Country from a line in, in Montaigne, um, I, I think I had a sense that it was a real project and that she was, really taking the writing very seriously. It wasn't just anymore to update people, although we did do that. We did update and we did give information. It was really much more about the writing and about the processing of grief and understanding the situation that she was in through writing and through her art. Um, and then she published a couple of pieces that she had written one with the Washington post and one, a couple on, um, there was one on monologue and, um, some online magazines. And then in September, when the New York Times published her piece in Modern Love was when we really knew for sure that, that um, you know, that her writing was a serious project that was really, that really had some traction, that had some, some, um, a wider audience, really, you know, a, a bigger platform um, that, that she could aim for. Uh, because she wasn't sure she really, you know, that gave her a huge confidence boost and a lot of like, um, 
a, you know, sense of, of ethos in her writing because she'd never written anything like that before. She was a poet and she was a good poet and she published poems in, in good journals and, and she got a lot of good feedback about her writing. She'd won prizes as a poet, but she'd never written um, memoir or nonfiction or essay or anything really um, other than as a professional writer for like a, a communications department or for a, um, you know, a magazine or something like that. She'd done some short pieces for, but this was just, you know, the, cre the creative nonfiction sort of genre was entirely new to her and she was kind of making it up as she went, went along in, in a lot of ways. So until they, she really got those publications, and in particular, the New York Times publication, um, I don't know that we knew exactly what shape and, and what, you know, how much momentum and, and density her project had. Um, but certainly I knew that she was taking it seriously and that she wanted to make something out of it, um, you know, as early as that, that summer before the, the uh, Modern Love piece. So she didn't know this book was going to be published until close to the end of her life. Yeah. Um, well, it happened really quickly after the modern love piece. I think it was like the 23rd of September when that piece ran and like within days she'd been, um, you know, she started talking to people. And then I think maybe a week or two after that, she had a book deal with Simon and Schuster. So she knew she had this thing in place, but then she had to write the book. Right. Um, and, and she finished the book in early January. So, you know, she had written some material on the blog and, and for the essays that she published. But that really only amounted to like, it might have been like, I don't know, 30 to 50 pages worth of material. Um, and so she basically wrote the book between the end of September and, and the beginning of January. And um, yeah, and so she and she finished the manuscript. She knew it was done, but the editing process hadn't even really started when she died. Um, they had only done some very preliminary things while she was still alive. And, and even in hospice, the first couple of days, she was sending notes back and forth to the editors and, and um, she was still really actively uh, involved in, in shepherding the book to, to publication to the extent she could be. And that didn't last very long, obviously, but, um, but it was such a condensed process. Their original date for her to submit the final manuscript was, I think, April or May. And then they decided to move it up because she was producing pages faster. And obviously there was some urgency given her condition um, to try and get the manuscript finished. And they thought, I think, you know, if she can, um, if she's producing this quickly, there's no reason not to publish the book earlier. Oh, wow. And so let's talk a little bit about Nina's last days. I mean, it it was in a, a hospice care center that was closer to your home. Yeah, that's right. We came back to Greensboro. We decided we wanted to be as close to home as we could. Um, her mom actually got hospice care in home. And for a variety of reasons, we didn't want to do that. I think partly it was just the setup of our house. We, our bedroom is upstairs and it's less accessible than where Jan was. And um, you know, we have two little kids and, and they could always go home from their grandmother's house. But, um, having that happen right in their house seemed like, uh, a lot to deal with. And, and ultimately Nina was just more comfortable with the hospice facility. So we went to this really lovely hospital hospice facility and it's got, you know, doors that you can walk out and go directly outside and the rooms are pretty big so they could accommodate guests who came to visit. And, um, and the kids were able to spend a lot of time there. Uh, so, so they actually spent a fair amount of time either with Nina or, you know, right in her vicinity uh, during that last week when she was in hospice. 
it was the the ultimate the full experience of it was a little bit of a mixed bag for me um the the lovely part of it which i've just described was that she had you know she had the ability to open windows and doors and we even took her outside a couple of times um and she had the lots of friends and family and people who were close to her who came to say goodbye or just to to visit um but you know the the end of her life was really difficult it was there was a lot of respiratory crises and um it was really hard it was hard to go through that with her it was hard to know that um you know i was my goal was really to prevent those crises and to keep her comfortable and to keep her um where i thought she would be okay um but you know it's it's really difficult it's it's just a hard transition to go through with someone that you love and um watching her even you know moderately suffering was was really difficult for me um and i think you know the the fact that the disease went to her lungs meant that she was going to have obviously respiratory failure was going to be the the issue uh, and that was something that that she really um you know, was uncomfortable with and, and both of us were trying to, to stay ahead of. And, um, so that part was obviously really difficult and it was just such an otherworldly experience. And we also came straight from the hospital. So we'd spent a week in the hospital or close to a week in, in Duke university hospital. And then we went straight to this hospice facility. And I think, you know, I probably had six hours of sleep in, in that entire time. I mean, it was just a sort of bizarre dream state of, of, hospital care and then hospice care and people coming and going and, you know, you're making important decisions, but you're also a complete lunatic. And, you know, it's just a, a really strange position for anyone to be in. Um, and a really good reason to, to be prepared before all of that stuff goes down to have thought about that stuff and talked about that stuff very carefully, both as a, as a couple and as a family and, um, you know, to, to kind of get your ducks in a row so that when it, when it's happening, you don't have to think so clearly. And you and Nina did do that. We did. Yeah, we were, I, I was very confident that, that the two of us were on the same page. Um, we were, she was very, um, very much up for those conversations ahead of time. We had done it with her mom and I think we were sort of both apprentice to her mom um, in terms of, you know, getting out in front of that stuff and having those difficult conversations with people before the event happened. Um, I know, I remember very clearly her mom doing that with us down to, you know, talking about funeral arrangements or whatever, not even just, you know, actual care, uh, but what, what she wanted in terms of after she was dead. And, um, but yeah, we, we had those conversations and we had them more than once, you know, we revisited that stuff. Um, and I think that's really important in retrospect. It's very, it was very important, um, for me to feel like I could do that stuff and not second guess myself and um, and not worry that I was doing something that she wouldn't want me to be doing. Yeah, you, you still find yourself in a very rare situation. Not that your wife was young, two kids and a husband, but now you, the husband, is are now having conversations less than a year after your love of your life has died about her book. Right. I mean, how how are you dealing with the aftermath, not only of your wife's death and being a single parent, but of the the huge awareness now and and the the bright hour getting a lot of this attention. Um, how are you dealing with all that? Well, um, I mean, for me, it's really a, a huge positive. Um, I think in in almost every way, the the is maybe 
two main components to it, I guess, if I could, if I could sort of break it down conceptually. And one is I feel very committed to Nina's projects. Like I feel like one of the few things that I can still do for Nina, um, uh, you know, obviously she's dead and, and she, you know, the, her and her mom used to, her mom used to always joke, you know, what, what do I care what you do at my memorial service? I'm not going to be there. Um, but, but, <laughs> but, um, but actually she did care, you know, and she wanted to have some input. She wasn't super controlling about it or anything like that, but, um, but she wanted to have certain things represented. And for Nina, her legacy has a different kind of embodiment because she wrote this, this book. That's not just a book that she wrote. It's a book about her own mortality and her own family and her own relationships. And it, it's so deeply personal. Um, and I feel like, you know, the book is such a, it's such a gift. And, and I know that obviously, because I'm so connected to Nina, but I also really truly believe that it's that kind of gift for every reader. It may not resonate in the same way for everyone, but the way that Nina was able to process grief and to transform some of her experiences into really beautiful images and, and to connect different concepts to her own specific experiences and to relate it all with like a really great sense of humor, I think is something that literally anyone can access and enjoy and benefit from and, and just really be enriched by. So I feel like I'm sort of a, you know, proselytizing for Nina's book or whatever, so that there's that element of it. And then, you know, it's also to do very selfishly and personally with my own grief. Um, you know, getting to talk to people like you is amazing. It's, it's, I really think the you know, the number one misnomer or misconception about people who are grieving is that they don't want to talk about the person who died. That may be true for some people, but it's, I think mostly it's that people have a discomfort with other people's discomfort about death, or they have a discomfort with relating to the idea of death. Actually talking about the person that you love is something that almost every widow or widower that I've spoken to or communicated with enjoys. Um, and so I get to do it not just in conversation, but I get to do it with people who have these like really thoughtful questions that they've come up with. And then they give me a platform to to process and to think and to discuss in ways that I might not ever have thought to do because I'm not coming up with the questions and I'm not, you know, I'm not doing the 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 structure of the conversation all by myself. I've got somebody who's a professional uh, most of the time on the other end doing it. And um I, I really think um it's it's a gift. It's a it's a major uh, leg up in terms of being able to process your grief and conceptualize it and break it into um, sort of more manageable chunks and make sense of it. Um, uh, you know, Lucy Kalanithi, who did the um, the book launch event with us in San Francisco when Nina's book came out, her and and Kelly Corrigan, she told a, a sort of a joke that she says that that what the advice that she gives to people who um, lose somebody is you should just do a book tour, book tour and promote your dead spouse's memoir. That's the best way to deal with grief. Obviously, then why doesn't everybody just do this? Um, but and and you know she's right. She's one hundred percent right. It's like it's the best grief therapy that that a person could ask for. And you know I do think you have to be comfortable being open. Um, but Nina wrote our story, you know, and I was comfortable with that. It never really bothered me. I never felt exposed or, or um, you know, overly vulnerable because she was writing about it. So, so discussing that stuff for me is really, um, is really a treat. If anything, I wish I got to do it more. 
Um, I wish I got to talk about it more. I wish I had interviews like this, you know, twice a week instead of just every so often. Um, because it, it, you know, it makes me feel closer to her. It makes me feel healthier in terms of the way I'm dealing with it. And almost every time I do an interview, I think of something in a new way, or I think of something that I hadn't thought of before to do with, um, with Nina or with grief, or just even about the book, um, that somebody's read a passage that I hadn't really thought about or hadn't thought about in that way. And so, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's, I don't even really feel like it's a, a drawback. I don't feel like there's really a downside to it. And I, I can imagine somebody who um, didn't like to talk quite as much as I do, which um, you might have noticed I, I do. But it's awesome. It really, I mean, it really is. And, you know, I know Lucy and talking to her about Paul and, and you about Nina. It, I mean, it's, it, it really is a celebration. And I feel, I mean, the word gift, um, I feel like Nina left a huge gift for everyone who is open to reading it um, yeah. about preparing about everything walking through that. And she did it with humor and she had nicknames for her cane. And I mean, it, it was, it was just so um, authentic. Um, I actually felt that I was right there by her side, just like you. And I, not many authors can pull that off. Well, I'm really glad. I mean, that that's really, um, it's really rewarding to hear people say that because that's exactly what she wanted. And I, and I think my bit, one of the biggest joys for me in reading the book is how accurately it portrays who she was. You know, it really, her characterizations of me, of the kids, of her mom, they're just, they're so good. And it, it comes from in part this sort of granular detail that she was and some of the things that she shares are sort of silly and irreverent and, and, you know, just kind of dark humor or, or just ridiculousness, but it all brings out the, these aspects of people that she, there's no way she could have explained that stuff. She had to show it, you know, as the, the, there's that old saying for, for writers that you have to, you have to show instead of telling people stuff and I really think she pulled that off in an amazing way about something that's so hard to talk about that most people find really challenging to talk about. And, um, you know, the biggest thing that I always tell people when they ask me about the book and, and loads and loads of people, even really close friends and relatives have said, yeah, it's still sitting on my nightstand because I'm afraid to read it. I'm afraid of, you know, feeling what I'm going to feel when I read about Nina dying. And I say, look, if you pick that book up and read it cover to cover and you don't laugh out loud more times than you cry, I'll. I'll pay for your copy of the book. Like, I just, I feel a hundred percent confident. Like you probably are going to cry. It's a sad thing when a young person dies. And obviously it's a moving book and Nina wrote it really well. And she put a lot of passion into it and she loved being alive and she loved the life that she, she and I had, had lived together and created together our family and our kids and everything. And, um, all of that is sad, but I mean, she's funny. She's like wickedly funny. And then there's loads of that in there. And, and, I still laugh out loud when I read the book and I know it's coming. Like I know, I know all the stories anyway. So yeah. Well, it, that the book is a gift. Um, and I am so grateful that she shared it and I am experiencing her through you. And, um, you know, we live, we live in the same state. So hopefully one of these days we'll come face to face and, I can't tell you how wonderful it is to hear that you're doing well, to hear that Freddie and Benny are, are doing the best they can um, through this difficult time. But I'm also so happy to hear that talking about Nina and this book is, is 
is easy for you, that it keeps her alive and it keeps her story going. So I can't tell you how much I appreciate your time. Well, thank you so much for having me on the program. You have a great day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for joining us today. And remember, you're the designer.